Welcome to the Career Conversations podcast brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group. I'm Craig McGregor and today we're joined by Luke Welfare. Luke and I met a little while ago. He was one of my career transition clients that we service through a, a global contract. He's someone that we've really helped out in terms of trying to discover what it is that he wants to do in the next phase of his career. But he talks really openly about his career in the public sector and private privatisation of the power generation industry. But more importantly about the emotion of, of going through a redundancy and, and how it affected him and, and how he's moved forward and found some great contracts. He talks with passion about the work that he's doing at the moment with, with Hunter Water and there's a real difference in, in where he come from and, and where he is today and he has an excellent response to our career conversations time machine question. So sit back and enjoy our conversation today with Luke Welfare. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group, specialists in permanent recruitment, labour hire and HR consulting. Start a conversation with us today via our website hrgroup.com.au or at our socials, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. So welcome to the Career Conversations podcast, Luke Welfare. Thanks, Craig. Well, great to be here. Excellent. So let's have a chat about your career. How did it start? So I um, am an engineer originally, so I... Um, Why? Why did you want to be an engineer? Um, it was an interesting conversation I had at school about year nine, and someone said, oh, you can good with maths and sciences, and you like putting things together. And I probably thought at that stage, maybe, you know, I'd become a trade person or something like that, you know, because that was interesting. And then they said, no, you become an engineer, and that sort of stuck in the head. And so was this a career counsellor or was it, it was just a, a teacher? Career, it was a career counsellor. Yeah, okay. One stage they were talking to people and they talked to people about, you know, there was some sort of test. I can't even I think there was some sort of test that they did about... Like an what, aptitude test. Yeah, aptitude test sort of thing. And someone said, oh, no, you could be an engineer. And I'd never even thought about that. And yep. then I had an uncle who was an engineer. Um, and, yeah, it seemed to rub off. That seemed to... That so did you chat to him? Uh, once or twice. I'd been to... Um, you know, a couple places that he worked at and stuff like that. Got an opportunity to have a look at those things, and that seemed to interest the thing. But I actually had this, you know, it's kind of that Dilbert thing where you learn to pull things to pieces, and then you start putting them back together again. And, and so that's probably the, the the skill, like putting your hand and your mind together. Yeah. Okay. So uni. So you did uni. I'm so yeah, I did uni in Sydney. Went yep. to the University of New South Wales and did electrical engineering. Um, and then after that, I um, basically joined the Electricity Commission of New South Wales um, and, and tried that on. And so you had a, quite a lengthy career there, didn't you? Um, yeah, I'd been, I, I spent more than um, directly in the sort of electricity industry as such, more than 30 years. Yep. Um, and a variety of roles. So I started in the design branch in head office as a junior engineer and then got um, an opportunity to go to site. And I worked at Liddell famous Liddell that's about to be closed, um, for eight years and worked on its half-life rehabilitation in the 90s, which was great experience because um, I started managing contracts um, and managing small ones. And as you got more experience and, you, and, you, and people could see that you could manage them, you ended up with more complex works. So let me, let me talk about that. So you, you become an engineer, I'm, I'm guessing, to build stuff, work in spaces where you're making things happen. Managing contracts really isn't engineering work is it no it is because you're managing the site to site day-to-day activity so okay. you're engineering things as you go along um, you're making engineering choices about how things are 
um, put together and you're managing those processes and, and overseeing the, the sort of side end of the design work. Okay. So you worked your way into management? Yeah, I got an opportunity for a leadership role um, and managed to, started to manage a small team and that grew. So I started with four or five people and over about a four-year period that sort of role um, changed to about nearly 30 people managing. Um, and then in that process of that, um, conversa- I had a, a career conversation with actually uh, someone in private industry and he said, oh, look, you've got all these great technical skills and you can manage people and all that, but you've got no commerciality. Um, and that person gave me some advice that I needed to get some sort of commercial work on the other side of the fence effectively uh, and understand how markets operated. And there was an opportunity for uh, a role in a marketing team to be their regulation manager. Um, and so I spent a couple of years learning how to be um, A, regulation management, B, understand how markets operate and how people um, operate within those markets. So that was very um, useful. Did you enjoy it? I did because what it changed the emphasis of was that because the electricity industry has the ultimate widget manufacturer, as people say, um, I worked in the the sort of widget management side and making every um, widget the least cost widget that you could possibly do. And then when you work in the marketing team, you're actually trying to figure out how you sell that. And you don't need to actually, um, in lots of respects, manage the the cost side, you're actually trying to figure out how that person who's giving you that widget, you can then make money off. Money yeah, off. Okay. And so that changes the whole mindset of how you think. Um, and that, I think, was a useful transition in my own personal career to actually get that mindset that it's not only about saving money, it's also about you've got to make money at the end of the day. Yeah. And is that because I'm guessing back then it was all uh, government, public electricity. So was it a, a different selling to a private enterprise, do you think? Um, no, the, about that stage, the national electricity market had started up. Yeah, okay. And so the regulations were with that. So we were interacting with um, both private and public um, competitors in the marketplace um, and then also um, working with the regulators. So the, you know, there were regulators, state-based regulators, and there are you know, Commonwealth-based re- regulators, so you know, ACCC and stuff like that, and working out how the market would evolve and what the impact to the business was in terms of dollars and cents. So um, it was a commercial business, even though it was a state-owned corporation, um, but it was, it was driven to actually make money. So you think your time in that marketing team helped you understand the commercial side of any business? I think it does. I think that that's been a useful transition. I think, that, as I said, the, the um, understanding how markets operate is not what people, lots of people do, um, and understanding how people can look at um, how things are going and how our, their competitors are operating um, and then react to the competitors um, was very dynamic um, in terms of what people were actually doing. It was very useful. Okay. So what was your next step in the organisation? Um, I took a, a, a role in Queensland to work on some major projects. Um, and So was this back in the more engineering space? Sp- more engineering space. I, I thought it was time for a change and it was an opportunity to not work just exclusively in New South Wales. Um, so I took a role in Queensland and worked in Brisbane um, to work on a major project. One of the projects I did pick up was to negotiate an ILOA, which is an Indigenous Land Usage Agreement. And I did that um, with a guy called Rick Farley, who was a really, really great mentor to work for um, and work with and understand what was going on between the differences, effectively what he would say was between, you know, white 
person's law, Whitefellas law, and Blackfellas law as such in terms of how how the things would be managed. So what was the project? What were you trying to achieve? Um, we had to basically um, purchase 50 hectares of land that had a native title claim over the top of it, and we just basically um, um, worked. When I joined the business, it hadn't been properly managed, and understanding the ramifications to the business. Um, we then engaged the right people, got some right legal advice and put a team together very quickly and did a whole heap of work with the, in, the Indigenous group and worked, um, I think, reasonably well with them to end up with a reasonable outcome in the end of the day. So, again, excuse my ignorance, but that doesn't sound like engineering. It doesn't. It's about, about managing yourself and managing people and yeah. stuff like that. And that's that's probably the transition that occurred um, in, in that sort of sort of four to five year period was it was more a, a, about my career come from um, managing lots of technical things to actually managing people and managing relationships so that the regulation job was all about managing the relationships you had with people um, and then going to a completely different business where you weren't known and then managing new new relationships and then experiencing completely different things um, that you'd never done. Uh, you know, from getting bills tabled in Parliament of Queensland to get things sorted out, to actually putting a legal team together that you'd never actually had worked with and working in a completely different legal sense, um, and then developing a, a, a strategy on how we would deliver the outcome of the acquirement of the land um, through both the, the native title component and the owners of the land, which were the, I think was a forest equivalent of our Forestry Commission in New South Wales as such. Yeah, okay. And so... After that occurred, what was next? Um, and then there was an opportunity to come back to New South Wales. Um, it always was in the plan that Lisa and I and, and Sarah that now had... Um, so was it family reasons that brought you back or was it career reasons that um, brought you There back? was a bit of both. Um, you know, things family-wise, we'd had a few ups and downs in terms of health issues um, and my father had passed away and things like that had occurred. Um, and then it was just this opportunity that sort of occurred one day to move back to New South Wales uh, and take a role at Vale's Point Power Station as their production manager. And that's that role is all about managing people. So you end up with about 140 people working for you. They're working around the clock. They're working across two power stations. Um, you know, a huge industrial um, world um, because the power plant operators are the, the power base of industrial relations at um, any, any power station. Um, and drive the industrial agenda in lots of respects. And we had a lots of you know, ups and downs with that. And then at the end, um, in terms of industrial work, we sat down and started using interest-based bargaining processes to work through um, uh, what was going on industrially with the operators at the power station and ended up, I think, with a really good outcome that both parties at the time, I thought were should have you know should have been commended on the results because it was far better than what was currently planned with the sort of you know winner take all or um, combative style industrial negotiations that had been the the, the basis of the organisation's arrangements um, for a long long period of time, and the organisation I worked for had taken a stance to change those, um, and this was a really good way of rolling those out with interest based bargaining, and it's some it's a process that I've continued to use in other other locations yeah. um, that I've worked So you, you really are leaving the technical sphere and becoming more a manager, aren't you? A people leader. It, it is. It's about people leadership at that. And, you know, uh, uh, it's about everything that you do and say um, people look at. Um, and 
you know, you can't be perfect every day, but you try and be. But you know, and I'm not long. I'm not can't claim to be a perfect human being. But that's the process that you actually end up with those things. So you actually, you've got to live the words that you say. Um, and so you know, in, during that time, we had you know big safety had safety as an issue and stuff like that. And it was a matter matter of living that every day. Yeah. Okay. And I wonder if the readers, uh, the listeners, can hear. Get a bit of rain on the roof. I know it's how exciting good. is this? Oh, well, it's the first bit of rain we've had in so <laughs> long. I mean, I, hopefully they're getting up where they need it. Well, I hope so because there's lots of you know uh, people who need it. You know, they're talking about Merriwell running out of water in a month or two's time and stuff like that. So that's very um, unsettling for people. Well, we'll get to where you're working now later on when it comes to water. But <laughs> okay. So your production manager. What was next? Um, so then there was an opportunity to take the, the, the absolute leadership role for two, the two power stations near Lithgow, Mount Piper and Willarawang. So what was the title of those roles? Um, General Manager Weston. Yeah, okay. So basically the person in charge in the region. Um, and that was interesting. So give me the uh, geographical spread because they're not close, are they? Um, the two power stations are about 10 kilometres apart. Yeah, okay. Um, and so they're west of Lithgow by about um, 20 kilometres. Yep. Um, and... The Wollerawangs had a power station on that piece of land since the mid-1950s, um, and the power plant that's there, that's now retired, was basically built in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and then the Mount Piper power station was built in the, late, in the mid to late 90s as such. Yeah, OK. So were you commuting? Did you move down there? How did no. it work? So the family stayed here because yep. my daughter was in school, and we took that Hard, hard, hard approach to it, and so I would travel each week um, out there, and I had some digs in, in in Lithgow, and I would basically work, you know, the seventy hours a week that the job required. <laughs> um, as such, did you like being the ultimate leader of that it, it was, site? It was interesting the first few weeks that it suddenly you felt like you were on a um, high wire, and, yeah, okay. and that everything you did and said was your responsibility, and everything that occurred around you was your responsibility. And over that, probably, did you like having that responsibility? Though? No, I quite enjoyed that. Yep. I quite enjoyed the role. It was um, always challenging. There were new things that were constantly occurring um, in in the role. There was because the the industry was in that final phase of privatisation and transitioning to that. Um, so step me through that because that that was it a volatile time? Was it uh, scary for employees? Was it? What, what, t- tell me about the culture of privatisation in power. So. Um, one of the things that the, the, the culture was, you have long-term tenure employees. Yeah. Um, and so when I arrived, more than 60% of the employees had long-term tenure. They had, long, they had long-standing superannuation defined benefit schemes. Uh, they were very, and they were you know, very protective of those things. And as you can understand that, that's their future. And yep. that's what they signed up to when they originally were employed. Um, and so lots of fear. I had people that had only ever worked from their apprenticeship in one workshop at one power station yeah. and that, as a fitter, and that's the only place they'd ever worked at. And you had to sit down with them and sometimes quietly provide unofficial um, financial advice and go back and say, have a look at your superannuation. I believe this is how it works and this is where you're up to and all that sort of stuff. And take, try and take the fear out of it for some of those older employees. Um, along the way. And then you just have to work through them and get people to understand that there, were, there was going to be changes and they were going to occur. 
um, and that we had to work as best we could with them and that would occur um, with the privatisation of the power stations and we worked through in a process where it was trying to be non-combative, again using interest-based discussions with the employees um, and then aligning those interests with what their future would be. And I remember once standing up in front of the whole, in a sort of town hall type meeting and telling people that, you know, over the next two years um, when this, you know, privatisation occurs, we'll have people who will take promotions elsewhere in the business, we'll have people who come, come here, we'll have um, some of our staff go overseas because the parent company was based out of Hong Kong um, and go and work at some of their other power stations. And in fact, over that period of time, exactly what had occurred. Yep. Um, and so we had people who had, you know, instead of being New South Wales based, we had people who had connections to people in India and in Hong Kong, um, people in Melbourne who where the corporate office was. So it was a, a really change in how you connected people because originally when they um, privatised people, they were structured to work for, you know, finance worked for the guy in corporate office. And so we had to go find the new connection points and make those connections and those relationships work and get people to understand what was going on and the HR team worked for the guys in Melbourne and stuff like that. So we had to build all these new relationships and very quickly so that the business could continue on functioning. Okay. And so ultimately, what happened to your role? Um, at the end of the time, Energy Australia finished me finished me up. I'd closed Wollerabang Power Station yep. and, and it was time for them to move on and so that's what occurred. Yeah, so let's let's have a chat about that because that's where, where we met. So yep. step me through, how did that experience initially feel for you? Was it You obviously saw the change coming with the privatisation. Did you think you were going to be affected? Um, it was one of those things, I remember sitting there... That, 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 that a um, initial town hall meeting when Energy Australia first bought them, and basically saying that if they were planning to close Willowing, then basically two out of three employees were no longer required by the business. Yeah, that's a big number in a place like Lithgow. It is, um, uh, and because the older power station required more labour to operate it, um, and and I'm thinking that's you know a really tough call for people to actually sit there and have that change on them. Um, and so there was a way, you know, how, how would that transition? Um, I personally at that stage didn't think my role would be that affected initially. Um, but, you know, over time frames, businesses change, their structures internally change, and, and those things then, then occur as such. So tell me about your first, so you, you get the news that your role's made redundant. How do you initially feel? I, I was pretty upset about it. Um, as such, I thought I'd put a lot, really lot of effort in and got people to um, across the line, as I call it, um, and structured the place. So to when be. you say across the line, you mean moving from public to privatisation, bringing the culture change, you were a driver of, of yeah. a successful privatisation. Exactly right. I, there was this, this, this change of from being you know, a publicly owned utility um, to be a privately-centric um, business that was... Um, you know, all a lot more about making the money as such, uh, and yeah. So it was, it was this, this trans transaction and transition that occurred over a, probably an eighteen month period after the sale process of actually restructuring the entire business to actually um, understand that once the decision had been made to close one of the assets, that we had to keep the existing the last asset effective and efficient, and how we had to work through that structural change hmm. with the team on site um, as such. So were you, were you angry, or what was what was the emotion? Um, I, I probably I, I probably was angry um, yep. and uh, upset and um, very very disappointed. Um, 
with that. And that's probably the same with anyone who faces that mm. sort of activity in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I thought I delivered really strong value to the business that had acquired the, the um, power stations. Um, and I had delivered really good safe outcomes and cost savings and um, a greater flexibility of the equipment that they had ever seen before. But um, that was their choice. Yep. Okay. And so what happened next? Um, so then there was an opportunity to come and work with with, with yourself yep. uh, and go through that what do I do next bit? What do I do? Yep. What, do what do I do next? And Because, yeah, in lots of respects over my career, things have, the right things have arrived at the right time for Falling me. in your lap a little bit, hey? Uh, well, I just wonder whether, you know, some people say, you know, you make your own luck. Yep. Um, and, and so those sorts of things occurred along my way. I ran into the right people, um, you know, the first person I ever worked, worked properly for was a really, you know, sound, smart, older bloke um, as such. And then along the way, I worked with people who have always wanted to um, instill and get the best out of me as such. Uh, and so the next thing you think about is, well, I've got to now figure out how I get the best out of myself um, and think about what all the things I've done and how do you actually explain that to people because yeah, that's absolutely. really quite very difficult. Yeah. Um, what about the search for what you wanted to do next? How did you find that? I find that very difficult mm. uh, because having got to a very senior management position in one industry, it's really quite hard for people to see the value in that. The transferable skills. Yeah, the really transferable <coughs> skills that I, I thought I had. But so the, the marketplace, it's almost becomes like an economic equation, doesn't it, of supply and demand. And I think what you experienced and is what most people experience here in our region in particular is that industries or companies will stay in their lane. They'll you know, want someone from a building and construction industry, although your transferable skills would suit them highly. You know, we've talked about it in this podcast that... You're an engineer, but the majority of the stuff that you've been talking about, you're a leader of people. You're a manager. You're a manager of process. You're an understander of how to make things happen. Well, that can transfer into other industries, but it's really difficult for those industries to to acknowledge that, desire that. Do you think that's what occurred in your transition? I, I think that that's always what's the, what I've found along the way. People yep. go, people go. Um, uh, I, you know, apply for a role and I get. Talk, I talk to the recruiters and get in front of then the client, and then at the end of the day, I don't get a role or miss out by you know, you know, very small margin. And the recruiter says, "Oh, look, can we keep you know?" And gen- you can hear it generally. Yeah. Most recruiters go, "Oh, yeah, we're going to keep on the books." But a couple of times, genuine. yeah. a, a gen- have genuinely said, you can hear it in the emotions of their voice. You've got all these really good skills. Mm-hmm. Can we just keep talking to keep the conversation going if we find yep. something? And you go, "Yep, yeah, that's that's fine uh, as such." So you you start. This thing, and you think you know, there's a whole process of what your network is, and you start talking to people and stuff like that. Um, and how you, did you find your network fruitful? I initially, no, not as not as fruitful as I thought it would be. Yep. Was that because it was in your industry? I think so. I think the more fruitful parts of the networking have been outside the industry. Yep. I mean, I can, you know. I, Reasonably, I still have conversations with people in the industry about what one current what a current work is, but in terms of activities and opportunities, yeah, it, I found that uh, inside the fence, effectively, that whatever I'd come from, 
you know, very that wasn't as fruitful. Mm -hmm. I mean, the industry's going through you know vast changes and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I that that ability to work outside the, this space and then try and talk to people is it is difficult because as you said, people get very narrow focused. They want to they want to you know someone who's pink and they, yeah. And, and the, the issue is is there's a few pink people around because of the marketplace. Yep. So if the industry or the market didn't have as many pink people, then they may look at someone outside their lane. But that's the difficulty of supply and demand in economics, I suppose. So That's very true. Okay. So step me through um, the processes that you took. Like you, you, know, you went to different agencies, you applied for jobs directly, you tried to network yourself. Which did you feel you got the most out of? Um, the... Some of the some of the good things were I'd found you find the right recruiter. Yep. And there's a couple of those along the way that I found that were useful and having useful conversations. Yeah, good. Um, other things were about getting outside your comfort zone and talking to people that you would have never thought you would need to have ever talked to before. Give me an example. Well, um, someone connected me with uh, a, a gentleman, um, Malcolm Irving, um, who's a uh, retired or semi-retired chairman of various companies and been on boards and I thought I'd never get to talk to someone as um, wise as him uh, and he's been very useful along the way um, talks some similar stuff that you keep talking to me about yeah. over the period of time but he also is about his connections. he's got a connection yeah his connections and, and thinking about different things and stuff like that um, and just basically keeping the conversations going. Keep um, finding new ways of getting your CV or your conversation to new people. Um, and we've done a little bit of that with some... Mm. Um, done some videos. Yeah, some videos and stuff like that. Um, you know... You're, you're one of the most open people to try stuff that I've had come through the program, which has been to your benefit, I think. But yeah. it's also, look, it's a really difficult scenario. Like, this is a sales process, isn't it? It is. You're selling yourself. How comfortable have you felt in that part of the process? Not, it's, not, it's not a natural thing for me. Mm. Uh, and so it was interesting because one of the opportunities, and I've I worked for a company, and, a, and I'm still doing work for them in, in little bits and pieces um, for them, and it's a Australian-based company, and that was more about business development with them. And yeah, it was okay. really learning the sales process that, you know, you've got this funnel of things that you're doing and that you've got to keep talking to people and go back to them. And, and it, sometimes I, I struggle with it because in common sense, lots of things that this company was doing was to save clients money and save them, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. Um, come and let's put this bit of gear on the wall and we'll make and we'll, and we'll basically do it. You'll cost you nothing and we'll start saving you money almost hmm. from day one. And it was really hard to get people to get their heads around that. that so they just not trust it. Yeah. It was, How does this work? I'm, this can't be real. And, and you sit down to the, the engineering part of it, which I understood reasonably well, you went, it's because yeah. it's... it's No-brainer. It's, it's no-brainer. It's deep electrical engineering, unfortunately. And it's something... It's not a solar panel. It's a box that sits on a wall and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so companies struggle with that idea because it's not something bright and shiny and stuff like that um, so you, you picked up a couple of other little projects here and there as well didn't you like you did some career coaching i did i did i actually had an opportunity to go and to talk to the miners at argyle yeah. diamond mine so tell me where that was because it wasn't 
down the road in Newcastle. No, no, it's up in the it's up in the Kimberleys. It's, yeah, and it's uh, so it's a cool experience. Oh, like I, the Argyle Diamond Mine, you know, has been there for the last thirty or forty years, um, and I had an opportunity to go and talk to because the mine's running out of ore that's of um, you know people can make money out of, and so the mine's got a few more years left to go, and basically they very, you know, Rio um, ended in a really good process where they actually started to talk to people about what their futures would look like. Yep. Um, and so that was a really great opportunity to spend a couple of weeks, you know, being underground with people and talking to them about what they thought their future may look like, um, where they saw themselves personally going. Um, some of the really interesting stories, some very sad stories that people had. And, um, and then some other stories that people said, well, at the end of the time, I get, this will be my last mining gig and I'll, I'll go and grow mangoes because I'll go up to Kununurra because I've got a mango farm and I can spend full time doing that and I thought yeah. oh that's that sounds like a nice idyllic you know, place, to, <laughs> place to live um, Stop being underground and growing mangoes yeah, being underground. So yeah it's interesting going underground I've been underground before but this is like you know kilometre underground and stuff like that in, in sort of a But tell know. me about the because again it's not engineering but were you able to reflect on your experience your process of career transition to help these people there was lots of that but it was also i think one of the things i i had was the mobility to um, engage with someone really really quickly about a deep you know personal yep. conversation that they haven't ever had and sometimes you ask them a question what do you think your future is and they really hadn't thought it through and then you actually help them with a little bit of the stuff that you know you've learned along your own transition yep uh, but you just talk to them, uh, you know, uh, as human beings, because we're all human beings, uh, and if you talk very nicely to them, they, um, you know, they, they open up and they tell you a lot of things that they, they're thinking and stuff like that. So it was a very engaging um, piece to do with, you know, range of whole whole people from, you know, very highly skilled people who were, you know, had scientific training to people who had, you know, left. I left. You know, guys said, "Oh no, I snuck out of school at year nine and." became a miner and started working in the industry started, hey? started working in the industry you know daddy got me a job underground or as the as the runner around underground and stuff like that and no formal education effectively whatsoever um sort of thing and then guys earning big big dollars and cents who had no education and not really understanding what they should do with it all and stuff like that and they talked about they got the big house and the four cars and mm-hmm. the boat and all that sort of stuff and yeah so all, how are they going to survive and move forward in their careers but also it is it's connected their personal life so yeah having those conversations it, it can be painful to listen to but it's so rewarding to be able to help no and it was really good i mean it was interesting the, the whole whole experience and it's you know the, you wake up in the morning to go underground and it's 4 30 in the morning and um so you know you've got to go and have breakfast i mean, i got up and went for a swim and they all thought i was mad because it was winter up there when i was there <laughs> and it was the, it was still 30 degrees and that sort of stuff like that so it was quite nice perfect all right. So tell us, what are you doing now? So, um, so the so I work for an Australian company in Sydney, mm-hmm. and then there was an opportunity um, to come home, effectively, as I, I call it, to work for Hunter Water. Yep. So, which is a target, wasn't it? Like when we first started, that was one of your targets. Yeah. And we tried unsuccessfully through a network of mine to get you in there, but you didn't give up. No. So I saw something that, like, uh, one of the things that that you've got to keep doing and one of the things that probably I hadn't done um, in my earlier parts of my working career was that um, you've got to keep looking about and seeing what's going on. Mm. So during 
you know, a period of time, I basically went, oh, there's a role there that's come up. Um, and so I knew the, I knew the, the HR guy because I'd met him previously and mm-hmm. we'd had a really good set of conversations. So I rang him directly. Great. And he then organised a coffee interview effectively, um, as I call it. Yep. And they offered me an opportunity to come and work for them to, um, on, on a contract basis to do deliver their um, long-term energy strategy. So um, Hunter Water have an aspiration that they'd like to be carbon neutral by 2030. Um, they have to look at that and make sure that they're doing that within the envelope of the most the propensity of the clients, which is a customer base to pay because they're a regulated um, monopoly um, by IPART and they have to make sure that they demonstrate that if it costs a dollar more to become carbon neutral, that's in line with what the customer's expectations in terms of the spend is yep. um, as such. So we're, there's lots of work that we're doing to try and figure out what those costs actually are. Um, and then there's interesting conversations. So one of the things that I've been doing is trying to get different lenses on energy from outside Hunter Waters experiences. So I've been talking to people that I know in the energy field, but I've also been talking to people um, in the Newcastle area um, and in Sydney who are in other industries and how they're thinking about energy and how they're thinking about that the ultimate end of the game is how they be going to become more carbon neutral or carbon savvy in, the, in this world of ours. And so I've been talking to people um, uh, in the innovation space, I've been talking to people at 1804 in Newcastle, I've been talking to people who have been um, working with community-based um, solar solar systems in the, in the north coast of Newcastle, in, in New South Wales, there's a number of solar um, farms that have been uh, community-funded, um, and there's a community-based um, retailer who's far more um, green-conscious. Um, but it's also about um, that they are owned by the community. So it's a community-based retail as opposed to, you know, Energy Australia or uh, AGL or Origin or someone like that yep. who also have been talking to those people as well to get their, their view on what the energy space would look like going forward. Okay. So you're back in a more technical role, would you call it? Or are you gathering information to assist Hunter Water in their goal? The first bit of it's about gathering information. So there's consultants obviously with um, uh, giving you estimates of costs and stuff like that and what the regulatory outcomes will look like. But it's also about getting the information of what people are saying. So suppliers, what their view of the world is or um, other, you know, non-major retailers, what their view of the world is. Because Hunter Water um, has the opportunity where it may... Um, you know, put solar farms on um, some of its ponds and its dams if it's cost effective. But it also has a number of buildings near its water treatment and wastewater treatment facilities that it would allow us to put what effectively we call behind the meter. So it's similar to an installation that would go on at uh, you know people's households. Yep. Um, and with a commercial size, much larger size, the, the, the payback period should be reasonably good for those sorts of things and ultimately be a cost saving to the community. Uh, and so we're looking at all sorts of things from even looking at, you know, we've got a wastewater pumping station in, in a suburb, but we don't have any space to put solar on it, but next door might be a school or a, a scout hall or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you can and, use. And we can, use the, we can share, the, share the roof space and the, and the benefits. Yep. Um, 
for yeah, the okay. community, community, and then offset the energy as such. So tell me, this is a bit of a different role to where you left power as the ultimate general manager of a, a site or a, and a high volume of people. How do they compare? Oh, much differently. Yep. Um, so, what do you, what what do you think you enjoy more, or what's more, Luke? Um, well, more, more Luke is about interactions with people. So, yep. both roles have lots of interactions with people. Um, the other role with um, with managing the power facilities and stuff like that, setting targets and goals, um, and managing them, but ultimately in some respects, um, creating the strategy mm-hmm. um, is a very, very interesting process in your own mind um, to actually see the missing gaps in a business yep. and, and do that. It's, it, that's, 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 that's stuff that interests, interests me and has a lot over my working careers to figure out when you put a team of people together where the gaps are and then how you can stretch the team members to actually fill those gaps in. Yeah, okay. So that's that's the that's the that's where my headspace has been over probably the last fifteen years. Yeah. Um, the role with um, Hunter Water is about understanding its its own gaps. So it has gaps in terms of how it views energy. It's a very sound business in terms of managing the water facilities, but in terms of energy, it's it's something that it doesn't have a great deal of strength in. And so being able to work with the business to be able to figure out what it should do. Um, is, is, is of interest and stuff like that. So there's all sorts of interesting conversations that go on about what you can do with um, the assets. So you, 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 know, you provide people with water um, and then you get wastewater products back from most ha- from households. Um, the, the, the wastewater itself we've traditionally treated as a once-through type product. You, yep. know, you know, in the house, flush it and it's gone. Um, and wastewater facilities have been a lot like that. They've treated it, cleansed it, um, collected the solids uh, and, and, and treated those so that they can be disposed of safely and then the rest of it's discharged back into oceans or wherever the, the rivers or wherever it's been and that it's all safe to do so. Hmm. Um, the world's becoming you know, more populous uh, and we live in almost the driest continent in the, in the, in, in the world. Um, and so we need to start circular, circular economy. And that doesn't mean um, having to drink yeah. water you use, but it, it, it is about There's using... There's some use for it. it. Some use for it. So you look at whether you can harvest the biosolids and turn that into fuel and then create energy to manage the yep. wastewater treatment, treatment plants. Yep. And, and there are plants around the world where that is occurring. Yeah, yeah. So Hunter is looking at that. It's whether there is, um, you know... You can harvest from things like urine, believe it or not, and I'm talking to a professor at the University of Newcastle about whether there's a project we can actually demonstrate how you could harvest that and put use it, yep. use it as fuel, cool, um, as such. And then it's it's about understanding because if you think about transitions along my entire working life, um, and I was talking to some of the people that were that hunted water about that and. What's the Uber for hunted water? What's mm. the Uber for the the, uh, the water industry? Because every industry yeah the, disruptions the, coming disruptions coming. If you think about, um, you know, I talk about you know I started my working career where cut and paste literally meant cut and paste. 
to the point where you know you've got an office in a pocket mm. you know your iphone's your yeah. office um, effectively uh, you know so you know those changes are occurring you know no computer on the desk i've got more computing power in my wrist than landed and lunar modules and stuff yep. like that but even that's interesting in itself you know you were a part of a public sector aging market in terms of power generation and you're a full-time employee now you're a consultant at Hunter Water, so you're on a fixed-term contract, is that right? Yep. Yeah, so that world of work is different for you, and that's going to become more the norm for a lot of different people. And how people react to that and how they use those opportunities is going to be critical in their career moving forward. I, I, I can see, like, um, it was interesting because I was talking to one of the young blokes at work the other day, he said, I'm going. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm going to finish my, my mechanical engineering degree off. And I've got a trade. I'm going to go and do a Saturday in the mines to earn enough money to pay for the rest of it. And I'm thinking, hang on, wife, he's got a wife and a child and he's doing this. And like that would have never occurred no. to, to me. It would have been, no, you, your paradigm would be get a job. That's right, full-time job, have a mortgage, pay it off. Yeah, that sort of stuff. And he was quite comfortable doing that. And I'm thinking... Well, that's where lots of people have got to get comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But it's also about employers have got to get comfortable with people who are doing that as well. 100%. Um, as such. And, getting, and, and, and understanding, oh, look, I've got a, you know, blogsy, I've got, a, I've got a, this job here for six months, let's offer him that, that role and, and, then the, and then see what happens at the end of that period of time. But be comfortable about the fact that you, that, that person's not the right person for the next role in the business mm. or... Is it? And they've got to understand the, those sorts of things. And I think yeah. that that sort of more flexibility in the workforce will um, eventually occur to all things. So tell me, are you happy with your ultimate transition at this point or where it, are you at? It's a, it's, I think it's still a work in progress. Yep. I think that um, my, you know, my, yeah, my paradigm of my working life is a full-time job. Mm -hmm. um, and... Maybe that won't occur, but uh, to get understanding of what the future is and all the skill sets that I've got and working on them, um, I think is, is, is important. And being able to continually look at what's going on around me and seeing where I can add value to any organisation is very important and think about those things. So you often you see something and you think, well, how do I add value to that? that process and I think that's the way people have got to think about their careers going forward Where, where's where's my skill set is mm. uh, how do what's I add value? value what's is there anything I've got to add to it you know how do I add that skill and stuff yep. like that okay so we have a time machine on the career conversations podcast so we're going to rewind the clock to 20 year old Luke given what you know now what advice would you give him um I think there's two two pieces of advice that I've uh, I believe um one is that you need to have people. You need to get wise counsel along the way. I think that, uh, and I've had some, and but it's something you need to actually seek out. Do you think that as a twenty-year-old is hard to recognise what's wise and what's not? Well, I think at a twenty-year-old, sometimes what you think is what, what sometimes what wise counsel might be is might it might seem like what's fun. Yeah, uh, and that's okay but it, it is it is something that you need to understand you need yep. to understand that and i had some advantages when i was in my mid-20s i did had a person who was also fun but he was also gave wise counsel um but so you've got to look at that along the way um, you've got to have a look at people that look outside where you are mm. that aren't isn't probably the word isn't um 
who aren't emotionally attached yeah, to, okay. to, to what's going on and then can go, well, you're not thinking about this right. And this, the second bit is I think that sometimes spending too long in one place is not good for you in your career because you become um, you can become a bit complacent as yeah, such. which is totally opposite to how your dad and my dad would have thought. True, true. And, and a bit, a bit to my career, which I probably Do spent... Do you think as a 20-year-old, you would have thought that that's not the case? Like now, as you've gone through this process and you're more mature, you can understand that. But, you know, that back in that time, probably was still... Find oh, a great job, stay there. Oh, great job, stay there. And 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 so there's been probably slots, periods periods in the career where I've probably spent too long. Yep, a, a year or two longer than I should have. Yep. Um, and they, you learn that afterwards. You twenty twenty hindsight's a wonderful thing. That's right. That's why we've got the time machine. And, and you just say, oh, that's we go because if you think about how people are, um, you know, people are going to work longer mm. than my parents did the, the people who are five years older than me will retire who will have the benefit of maybe some different superannuation outcomes and stuff will retire you know when they you know in their between their 55th and their 60th birthday and stuff yep. like that but people who are my age and younger they'll they'll work much longer careers and as they um get to become more mature they mightn't work as many hours a week um, hmm. As such, but they will continue to add value. Contribute they and still earn. contribute, contribute and earn because their their life expectancy, you know, all things being reasonable, is much longer. I mean, hmm. why did particular superannuation schemes max out at a certain age? Well, because that's the that's average. Where it was yeah. that was the life expectancy that people occurred, and now you know your life expectancy, you know, you would hope that you live a healthy life to to your eighties. And there's things that are adding value to that. I know mean, I talked to my mum and she's had her knees replaced, but if you thought of her, thought 30 or 30 years ago, they would have never replaced her. Yeah, just would have left them. And, and she would have sat in a chair and that would have been the end of her. Yep. So she's still out walking about and playing tennis on a Friday and stuff like that. Hmm. And, I, and I think that that's great. Hmm. So, yeah, I, the two bits of advice was, you know, heads up and see where, where you are in your career and look about and see what you can do that's different and never be afraid to do things different. I've, I think I've done, done that along my working career. Um, and then, you know, find some people to give you wise counsel along the way. Perfect. Okay, well, mate, I've enjoyed our journey together, time we've spent together and some of the fun things we've done in your career transition process. So thanks for coming on the Career Conversations podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Special thanks to our guest today, Luke Welfare, for his open and honest conversation. It was a great career transition conversation about someone who's going through change. Uh, If you liked our conversation with Luke, please subscribe via iTunes or you can always download via SoundCloud, which is available at our website, hrgroup.com.au slash podcast. I'm Craig McGregor and thanks for listening.